Uh, well, it's going back. Certainly, the the administration of Vietnam regretted it very much. Well, regretted. Yeah. Sherman at least you know was able to ban them from his army. <laughs> at least he was, or tried to anyway. He had about a half dozen with him on the march to the sea, but they were probably tucked away in commands far from his eyes. He believed very much. Well, uh, let's yeah. pursue that. Did he actually have reporters with him, or were these soldiers who sent back letters to their hometown? No, there were actually about a half dozen reporters for mm-hmm. the New York Herald, uh, a couple other major dailies, who were on the march to the sea. Now, look, but they, you had they weren't Theodore able Dave, to communicate. You, go ahead. I'm sorry, they weren't able to communicate, though, with their papers. That's correct. In a way, that starts the the morphing of this story because, you know, just as when you when a, when a, uh, a film, when a screenwriter takes a novel and turns it into a movie, there's a, a process of compression that takes place. When a reporter, having to somehow pull together his notes from November 15th through December 10th, 1864, there's going to be a similar sort of process of condensation, simplification, focus, uh, that starts to change the story. So they are filing in, in late December, early January, is where you will find in the major dailies in the East the first-hand reporter uh, accounts of Sherman's march to the sea. Uh, Theodore Davis, uh, the uh, uh, artist correspondent, files his for in, in January to uh, Harper's Magazine, which really then my picture section is heavily uh, based on the Harper illustrations that he made during the march. Uh, you know, ironically, they had one of the great war photographers, uh, George Bernard, accompanying the march to the sea, but they never stopped long enough for him to set his cameras up and take any pictures. So there's no pictures of the march to the sea, but we have uh, uh, Davis's drawings um, that are used by Harper's. So, uh, returning then to Sherman, uh, certainly his suppression of uh, free reporting is, is, is not unprecedented. Uh, one could argue the attempts today not to show pictures of military funerals are, are a vestige of that sentiment. That, sure, absolutely. Uh, but in any case, uh, more, more to the point, Sherman's treatment of Southern civilians. Where do we? What's your take on that? Uh, he believed in collective responsibility. He believed very much that, you know, for instance, uh, in an earlier instance in the war, if a sniper fired from the bank of a river on a transport carrying his troops, he accepted the fact that houses within a certain distance from that incident uh, likely knew about what was going on and therefore were liable for punishment. He believed that Southern uh, civilians were all complicit in the war, even if they didn't take up arms, by the fact that they did not oppose the government that took over the South during the war. Therefore, they had lost their rights to all the constitutional protections. In the, he knew when he established the March to the Sea, I mean, he put these very elaborate orders in place, but he made it very clear that there was going to be irregularities in the march, and he accepted those. And basically, his attitude to the Southerners were, you brought this war on, I can control so much, I can't control everything, you're going to pay a price, but you're paying that price because you're guilty of not opposing the war. And until you come to your senses and tell people in, in Milledgeville or tell people in Richmond that we've got to stop this war, this is going to happen again and again and again. 
So I can't say that he, he targeted them specifically, but I think he allowed a situation to develop where he knew they were going to have a hard time. And that was what they deserved as far as he was concerned. Uh, he did his job as a professional military man by establishing the rules and enforcing them to a certain degree. But even in his, his post-campaign report, he says, and I recognize that some of the boys did some things they shouldn't do. And that was really the extent of acknowledging there might have been some excesses, and there was never any action taken against any of them. It was all just part of the breakage, I guess, uh, collateral damage in, in an operation. And they brought it on themselves would be his ultimate justification for shrugging his shoulders and saying it's unfortunate, but they brought it on themselves. Well, when we talk about the damage done to Southern civilians, um, uh, it seems to me Sherman's actions are, are within certainly what is contemplated by the military law of his time. Um, sure, by the letter of the law. I mean, again, had had they, you know, he's got the official orders out there, which I'm sure he expected would have been held up to the standard of the quote-unquote rules of war. Um, the, but, you know, and he argued... Well, specifically, I mean, there are specific rules of war. The, the, I'm thinking of General, General Orders 100, the Lieber Code, uh-huh. that specifies what Union soldiers can and can't do. Right. And, and Sherman is within that. Well, yeah, although I, one would suspect that the scale of this, I mean, it wasn't evenly applied. Uh, certainly there were some properties that were lost because... There was no real effort to protect them from damage. Um, they were, I mean, look, his, his ultimate purpose here was really to send the message that Jefferson Davis cannot secure your home. Um, the only way you're going to secure your home is quit this foolishness, end the war, let's get all back into the Union, and then, then, I'll, then I will protect you, you know, he literally would say. You know, once he would, he would share his last cracker, uh, right? And, uh, and you know, we'll have peace, right? Well, that seems to me, uh, you know, as you present it, and, and as I've read Sherman's words elsewhere, a fairly humane and responsible way to go about this, rather than saying we'll have to kill every one of your sons in uniform, we're just going to take your cattle and uh, burn your fences and, and burn some of your houses. Right. I mean, uh, we're simply going to take the fruits of your hard labor from you and you're not going to get any back anything back for it and um, that's tough exactly which is better than killing your son certainly uh, well i don't think yeah sherman certainly never would have gone that far i mean you know no, no but i'm suggesting rather than defeat your armies in battle we can fight you at petersburg and kill all your men one by one gradually mm-hmm. and win the war that way or we can burn your houses you can build a new house but you can't grow a new son in that well, sense it's a humane way to fight True, but I'm guessing, you know, really, Sherman added a new major... He wasn't the first to undertake a campaign where civilians were high on the uh, the target list, if you will. I mean, the, the hard war had been developing from 62 to 63 to 64. Mm-hmm. But on the scope that he did it, and kind of with the dramatic flourish that he's able to do with his command of language and, and in the orders... He really added it to the, the, the pieces that were coming together that were ultimately aimed at destroying the enemy armies. Grant in Petersburg 
was hammering physically at the enemy armies. The, what Sherman does is, is strike a blow against the morale of the Georgia soldiers in Sherman's army, because there is nothing more destructive to a soldier who is being asked to potentially sacrifice his life to, be, to realize that his family at home is being threatened from another quarter because, you know, somebody down there is not doing their job. This, this puts a tremendous strain on a soldier's willingness to continue the struggle. You know, Joe, Joe Glathar's new book, I think, uh, really points out the fact that there's the morale of the South holds on rel- relatively strong in the Army of Northern Virginia through 1864, but it starts a precipitous decline in 1865 to the end. And certainly one of the contributing factors is the sense that I, who's protecting my family? And the answer is nobody. And that's, that's just very hard for a soldier to accept and to continue to function uh, as, a, as a combat soldier. And I think this was certainly one of the major contributions of this march to the mix that ultimately wins the war. I think that fits with a lot of current arguments involving gender and, and gender identification and roles uh, in Civil War era society. Uh, the role of the man is to fight, is to defend the home. The Confederacy is identified as the home on a large scale. Mm-hmm. But Lee's men are put in a position where they are defending their home on a large scale, but their literal home in Georgia is being devastated. What is a man properly supposed to do? Is it manly to stay with Lee and let your family be Tormented, or is it more manly to go defend your family, even at the risk of deserting Mars Robert? Uh, it's a horrible Robert position. Beginning to, to to raise warning flags about the high number of desertions in his army. Exactly, but again, I, I would go back and argue that that would be uh, on Sherman's part a very humane thing to do to get these men to desert, to leave Lee's army, uh, to weaken Lee's army by destroying its morale rather than by again killing its individual members. And it's an argument he did have to make to his good friend Grant, who really had a hard time. Grant's worry wasn't that Sherman was going to starve or his army was going to collapse in the middle of Georgia. Grant's worry was that that Hood's army was going to do something that was going to be politically disastrous for the for the North. And he really struggled to accept that this magnificent 60,000-man army was not going to be pointed at Hood, but in essence was going to be pointed away from Hood. Uh, and Grant, you know, Grant's grand plan, you know, just like you know, Petraeus came in with the surge, Grant came in with the, we're going to destroy the enemy army's plan. And all his operations in 1864 are aimed at enemy armies. You know, Meade is told, Lee is your objective point. Sherman, you know, wires Grant, I understand my job is to knock up Joe Johnston's army. And suddenly here is his, his friend and chief primary, really, uh, collaborative general, I mean, I think the man whom he trusts more than any other man, saying, I've got to change the plan. I'm not going after now Hood's army. I'm going into Georgia. We're going to knock them all up. And it's statements, statesmanship, I think he says at one point, rather than, than war. And Grant really has a hard time with this. I think that, that's a very perceptive point, because Grant really is focused on destroying the, the means of resistance, and then all the places will fall in, 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 in due time if you destroy the resistance. Although, 
in your book, you seem to share Grant's low opinion of George Thomas, who is the general fighting hood in Tennessee, uh, whereas a lot of people think Thomas was possibly the best general the North had outside of Grant and maybe Sherman. Well, and he may have been. It's simply I was reflecting in Grant. You know, Grant, you know, Sherman is, is painfully ambiguous about Thomas. I mean, he, he obviously picks him for the critical position. Because let's face it, if Thomas had blown it in Atlanta, the march to the sea would be the laughing stock of the Civil War. There is Sherman with 60,000 men at the wrong end of the country when, you know, Nashville falls and the Southern Army is let loose in central Tennessee. But Thomas does his job. He stops Hood and Sherman smelling like roses. And uh, uh, you know, he stops Hood. He destroys Hood. That's the only field army destroyed in open battle in the entire war. Yeah, uh, wrecks it pretty. Yeah, you know, knocks it down to a division size. Because don't forget, it's it fights at Bentonville, although it's at division size at that point. Um, but yeah, and but you know when Thomas when when Sherman has to rally to Thomas's defense when Grant's railing against him, he kind of nods at Ulysses and says, "Yeah, you know he's a he's a good general. He's just not tough enough." And um, you know that's not what Thomas needed at that point. I mean. Uh, Sherman pulls a bit of a con job at the setup of the march to the sea. I mean, when you follow the chains of communication, you know, Thomas is sending Sherman all these notes, you know, all these men you think you're sending me, you know, half don't have guns, half aren't trained, uh, a bunch haven't even shown up yet. Meanwhile, Sherman's telling Washington, everything's beautiful, Thomas is in great shape, I'm confident he'll be able to handle the problem. So, you know, he's, 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 he's piecing together a patchwork of forces that will, Thomas will use, but it's not an army by any means. And Thomas has a, uh, an incredible task of, of creating a fighting force out of all these pieces, some of which are veterans, some of which are not. But, you know, Sherman sort of presents the, the rosiest possible scenario, and it's really based on that that Grant gives his permission. So suddenly when Grant's direct communication with Thomas, and Thomas is sort of trying to explain why he can't jump right onto Hood at this moment. You know, Grant gets prey to every worry he, he might have had about the whole operation and begins to ascribe a lot of the problems to Thomas. And, well, Thomas uh, was actually relieved of command the day before the battle. Well, uh, an, the, an officer is sent with the orders But the word doesn't do get there. But he, he, yeah, Logan, Logan is sent. Right. But, you know, ironically, the minute Logan leaves, Grant sort of hits himself on the head and says, what am I doing? I'm sending a non-West Pointer? That's stupid. And so he, he, want, he wants to get on the next train, but by then the trains are blocked by snow and they can't move. But uh, by then Thomas has, has won the battle. Yes, and, and this is the, the most decisive field engagement of the entire war at that scale. So it's yeah. uh, Thomas is, is fairly vindicated. Um, and... Sherman's march to the sea is seen as a brilliant maneuver. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the I want to return into the, the civilian question because that does really lie at the heart of this. Mm -hmm. um, but what we'll do is take a short break, come back, and, and address the the total war question. So we'll do that in just a minute. We're talking today with Noah Andre Trudeau about Sherman's March. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Mm -hmm. 